from WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, David Sedaris. He has a new collection of personal essays called Happy Go Lucky. Don't let the title or his renowned reputation as a humorist fool you. In addition to the humor, this book has some pretty serious writing about his late father, who died a year ago at the age of 98. Throughout David's life, his father bullied him and belittled him and his accomplishments. Several essays in the new book focus on David's relationship with his father in his final years when he was in assisted living in the ICU. Also, New York Times religion correspondent Ruth Graham talks about how the issues dividing the Republican Party are creating tensions within white evangelical churches across the country. Later, Ken Tucker reviews Kendrick Lamar's new album. My first guest, David Sedaris, is a famous humorist who got his start by reading his personal essays on the public radio show This American Life. He's had best-selling collections of his personal essays, and has received the Thurber Prize for American Humor, the Jonathan Swift Prize for Satire and Humor, and the Terry Southern Prize for Humor. Several of the essays in the new book take a pretty serious turn. Those essays are about his father, with whom Sedaris had a lifelong combative relationship. He says, as long as my father had power, he used it to hurt me. In Sedaris's new book, he writes about when his father was in his 90s and his power was continually diminishing in assisted living in the ICU. His father died a year ago. The new book is called Happy Go Lucky. David Sedaris, welcome back to Fresh Air. So great to talk to you again. Oh, thank you so much, Terry. So I have to start with your author photo before we get into the heavy stuff. (laughs) So you're standing in front of like a library of bookshelves, wearing an elegant suit, holding a pipe in your hands, looking off to the side. There's something so like 1950s movie about it. Like, what is this photo about? Uh, Hugh has an old friend who he went to college with, a photographer named Ann Fishbein. And so I needed an author photo, so I asked Ann if she would do it. And so she arranged to get into the L.A. County Library Children's Department before they opened. And she'd been taking photographs of authors smoking pipes, you know, fake pipes. And so that's what we wound up with. It's like um, it's like a Playboy magazine <laughs> author yes. photo. That's right. Or like a <laughs> Hugh Hefner photo. Didn't he always have a pipe? Yeah. And look to the side like that? And I think some places are, you know, have a problem with it because they say he's smoking. But it's it's just a fake pipe. You know, if you look at it, it's so clearly a fake pipe. But it's just a, a really fun prop, a pipe like that. Like nobody smokes a pipe anymore. I know. I mean, I've been wondering that. Like, what happened to the pipe? <laughs> it's just for pot now. You know, yes, but nobody right. smokes tobacco out of it. Right. But anyways, for anybody who knows you, that's not like or reads you, that's not like a David Sedaris real pose. That's just, that's... Right. I was playing uh, like a character. I was, yeah, I was exactly. the author in his study. So why not just pose as you? Uh, oh, gosh. I just can't think of anything worse. But I, I really, <laughs> I, I've known Anne for, I don't know, I met her shortly after I met Hugh. So it's been like 30 years. So I feel super comfortable in front of her. But that said, I feel more comfortable if, you know, with a prop, if there's something I can kind of hide behind. Right. Okay. Understood. So um, I want to talk with you about your father who died 
not long ago. When was it exactly? May 22nd, 2021. You have some beautiful and very conflicted writing about him in your book. Several of the essays are about your father um, in his later years and about his death. So I want to start with an excerpt of one of them toward the end of the book. It used to be that people's parents died in their 60s and 70s, cleanly, of good old-fashioned cancers and heart attacks, meaning the child was on his or her own by the age of 45 or so. Now, though, with people living longer and longer, you can be a grandparent and still be somebody's son or daughter. The woman across the road from us in Normandy was 80 when her mother died. 80. That, to me, is terrifying. It's disfiguring to be a child for that long, or at least it is if your relationship with that parent is troubled. For years, I'd felt like one of those pollarded plane trees I'll forever associate with Paris, the sort that's been brutally pruned since saplinghood and in winter resembles a towering fist. As long as my father had power, he used it to hurt me. In my youth, I just took it. Then I started to write about it, to actually profit from it. The money was a comfort, but better yet was the roar of live audiences as they laughed at how petty and arrogant he was. Well, I feel sorry for him, Hugh has taken to saying. Nobody was born acting the way he did. Something must have happened that made him that mean. This is true, but getting to the root of my father was virtually impossible. He never answered questions about his youth, saying only, what do you want to know that for? David, you've written about your father for years. Did how you wrote about him change after his death and even before that when he was too out of it to read what you'd written? Um, well, I think what changed was... <sighs> You know, there's a real person, and then there's a character of that person. And when you're in a story or an essay, you're the character of who you are, right? My father was not a good person, but he was a great character, right? I know plenty of people who are good people but terrible characters. You know, they just don't work uh, in an essay. They just don't advance anything. In, when, when I wrote about my father in the past, he, he was like, oh, that not you know, gee, he can be tough sometime, but it's a lovable Lou. But that's not really who he was, you know. And that now that he is dead, I just feel like I can kind of let that aspect of it go. You know, it's tricky because you don't want to be a, you don't want to be a sixty-five-year-old man whining, you know, that your dad was mean to you, right? So here I am. <laughs> 65, and hopefully it's not whining, but, I mean, I figured there's a lot of people in the same situation that I was in. I hear from them all the time. You know, I don't feel like you're whining. I feel like you've put your father and your relationship with your father on the examining table, and you're reporting on the findings, kind of like forensics. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, because the way I've always made sense of things is to write about it. When my mother died, she couldn't be buried in the Greek Orthodox Church because she wanted to be cremated, and you can't be cremated there. So we had to have a funeral at the funeral home. And so I wanted something personal, you know, so I, I got up and I, I wrote something about my mother and I read it out loud. And it was it was the easiest thing ever to 
remind a room full of people why my mother was such a wonderful person, you know. And my father said, I want you to do that when I die. So the Greek Orthodox Church, it's a priest's show. Like, you can't really have any stage time. But they allowed me to say a few words in the break room after the ceremony was over. And I, you know, he'd asked me to do it. And so I read uh, a little something. And there was not a single good thing in what I read. It was just you know, about how he used to ram other cars at the supermarket when somebody took his parking space and the comments that he made to people and how nobody understood his jokes. But I said at the end, you know, people say, oh, I know you're going to miss him terribly, and the fact is, we will. You know, as for why, we'll have to get back to you on that. Because it it's complicated, and it's allowed to be complicated. I, I think now people are more inclined to say, like, well, that's a bad person. We We all hate that person now because they're bad but it it's it's more nuanced than that you know some you can still love a a mean person you can still love a difficult person it's your you, your mind as an adult you should be big enough to hold all of these things so you know i just could easily just spend the rest of my life trying to sort through the feelings that i had for my dad did your siblings have similar reactions to your father you know, it's interesting. Everybody in the family can have a different parent. You know, Amy had said, um, Amy said last Christmas, she said, this is the first Christmas without dad. And I, I thought, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, but her, you know, when she said, you know, like the checks he used to send us every Christmas. But my father never sent me the checks. Like he, when my mother died, my father became uncharacteristically generous and he started sending checks to people. And at first it was like $5,000 and then it went up. So it was like the limit you could give people and they didn't have to pay taxes on. And he said, uh, he said to me, I sent it to your banker and they put it directly into your account. So every Christmas I would write my father a thank you letter. That is so generous of you, so kind. You know, I spent the money doing this or this. And a couple of years ago, I was talking to my banker, and I said I was going to Japan, and I said I, I figured I'll, you know, I'll use the money Dad gave me for Christmas, and you know, treat myself to like a, a first class ticket. And she said, "Your father's never put a dime into your account." And so when I confronted him about it, he said, "You don't need it." And I said, "Well, why didn't you tell me this years ago? Like, why did you accept thank you letters? I mean, I'm the only one in the family who sent them, right?" Why didn't you tell me that sooner? So I think there was something, you know, he enjoyed about that. He lied to you. He pretended to be generous to you when he was just lying. Well, you know, my, I mean, my father was a perfect preparation for having Donald Trump as president. You know, just outrageous lies. You know, like, uh, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. Go to bed. And it's like, Dad, it's 9.45. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. And it's like then how come Barnaby Jones is still on? <laughs> so that, that wasn't dementia? That was like early. No, no, no. This was early growing up. Like uh-huh. anything, anything he would lie about. Uh, you know, talking about his daughters in a sexual way was something that was uh, Trump-like. Not paying people for the work that they did. When I was getting ready to move to New York City, he had a rental property, and he said, well, paint the rental property. It'll give you some money to move to New York with. And so we agreed on a price. 
I painted the rental property. He offered me half what he had promised and then offered to fill it in with S&H green stamps <laughs> oh, that he had brought from from New York State when we moved south in 1964. And I said, green stamps? I mean, they're worthless. No, I heard you can redeem them in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody who doesn't know what, what S&H green stamps were, they were kind of like stamps that you c- could use as cash equivalent in certain markets and stores. And that's like from the early 1960s, late 1950s maybe. Yeah, and yeah. you could get oh. toaster ovens and things like yes, that. Yes, right, it. right, right. Sounds like your father had a lot of money. Yeah, he did, but it was my mother's money. My mother had a wealthy aunt who died and we never knew how much money it was, but in 1970, our lives kind of changed. And my parents went to the funeral in Ohio and came back in a Cadillac. And they sold the Cadillac, but the Cadillac had like a fur throw in the back seat. My uh, aunt had married, my mother's great aunt had married two wealthy men in Cleveland. And one was associated with Black and Decker, like, you know, maybe he founded it or something like that. And the other one had a, a big department store. And, and she was childless, the aunt. And so the money was divided between nieces and nephews. And so we never knew the amount. But in 1970, my mother got $250,000, which was a fortune back then. So my father took it away from her and invested it. But if you went to my father's house... um. You know, the air conditioner was set to, like, 87. Um, the last time I went to my house, my dad's house and he was, you know, cognizant, he led me around the, through the house with a flashlight. And I said, oh, are the, are the lights out? No, he just didn't want to burn the electricity, right? Uh, if you saw him on the street, you would think, that old man is going to ask me for money. So he... He lived in in his later life, I mean, he lived like a, a pauper. My guest is David Sedaris. His new book is called Happy Go Lucky. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and Ken Tucker will review Kendrick Lamar's new album, his first in five years. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with David Sedaris. He has a new collection of personal essays called Happy Go Lucky, Don't let the title fool you. There's some pretty emotional stuff in this book. I want you to read another excerpt of one of your essays. And this is basically about you and your siblings around your father's deathbed. You always think that if you gather around and really concentrate, the person on the bed will let go. We were all there, you imagine yourself saying to friends, and in an odd way, it was sort of beautiful. So you become solemn and silently sit, watching the chest unsteadily rise and fall. You look at the hands as they occasionally stir, doing some imaginary last-minute busy work. So you're imagining a deathbed scene as you and your siblings are sitting around your father's bed, but it didn't work out in that kind of beautiful way where everybody's together as the parent kind of, you know, uh, dies. Um, How did it work out? He lived for another uh, four or five days. 
but just sort of in a weird kind of neither here nor there state. And he was on morphine, so he wasn't in pain. But it really was it really wasn't a bad death at all. I mean, my father fell when he was ninety five and he uh, couldn't return home anymore. So he moved into this place, this assisted living facility. And then, as he got even older, he kind of developed dementia, and he forgot that he was a difficult person. And the last time I saw my father and he was cognizant, he was fantastic. He was just this little gnome, this little cheerful gnome. Nothing bothered him. He had no criticism for anyone. And, you know, I don't know if he was there all along and he was just like an onion and covered in these layers of, like, rage and disappointment, and that was his little core, finally, like, shining through. But I was, I, I felt so fortunate that I was able to be in the presence of that lovely person. One of the things that really changed about him is he said at some point, uh, you know, that he voted for Trump, but he realizes now that was a mistake, that Trump had lied and that, you know, Biden is okay. And you you were astonished. Oh, I never thought I would hear my, hear my father say I was wrong, you know. About anything? About anything. But, but one of the differences, though, and it was something my father and I shared, you know, after the election, I let it all go, you know. I mean, I could have won any news quiz during the Trump years. Any, You know, the New York Times has that weekly news quiz. Always aced it. I knew everything that was going on. And I just kind of let everything go. And my father, when he moved into the assisted living facility, the television was too complicated, and he couldn't figure it out. And he lived with listening to Fox News and conservative talk radio. That was on all the time, and it kept him at a constant boiling point. And now, for the first time, he didn't, he didn't know how to make that happen, and then he kind of forgot that he cared about it in the first place. You know, those the the conservative news networks are, among other things, pretty homophobic. Um, so did that ever influence his feelings about you, watching all that ultra-conservative news? Well, I remember a couple of years ago when there was a vote in North Carolina uh, to make gay marriage unconstitutional. Like, And it was already unconstitutional in the state, but this was to make it extra, extra, extra unconstitutional. And my father voted for it. And I was in North Carolina, and he told me he voted for it. And I said, why would you do that? And he said, it sends a wrong message. It says that anyone can do anything, boy on boy or girl on girl. Or, and, and, he, and he said it as if there were more to come. <laughs> you know, was, but, but he didn't, when I questioned him on it, he didn't even, he didn't have a straight answer for me. You know, I said, you know, my niece, her aunt is gay and wants to marry her girlfriend. Well, how is that sending a wrong message to Madeline? But he couldn't even really, it was just something he'd been told by his networks, right? But he didn't, he didn't exactly remember the exact reason, you know? He, he had cut you out of his will without telling you he wanted you to find out after he died, but you found out before he died. And you were really offended. It's not like you needed the money and you have plenty of money. But for him to do that and not tell you, you seemed like, like a real insult. And you confronted him about it, and then he told you that 
maybe he'd leave you a modest sum, but you couldn't let your boyfriend Hugh, your boyfriend of 30 years, Hugh, have any of it, that he couldn't touch it. What message did that send you, both about yourself and about your relationship with Hugh? Well, he'd said a number of things in the past, you know, like that Hugh was just with me because he, you know, for money or what, you know, which to me sends a message that, you know, I'd be completely unlovable, that the someone might take advantage of me, but nobody would ever love me, you know. Um, and, and, and likewise, he and I had been together for like 25 years. And, and when he, he – uh, when he said that, no. When there was a woman I used to live with in Chicago, she just she had an extra room in her house, and I was getting ready to move to New York, and she said, "Well, I need to move in here. You know, yeah, I won't charge you any rent. You can save up money for New York." Her name was Evelyn, and uh, my dad met Evelyn, and he and I had been together for twenty five years. And I said, "Oh, I'm going to go to Chicago, and I'm going to see Evelyn." He said, "She's a great gal. Why don't you marry her?" <laughs> And I said, but I said, I've been with Hugh for 25 years, and she's, why would she want to marry a gay man, right? What makes you think she has so little respect for herself that she want to marry? Oh, you can, you can perform once a month. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, 25 years Hugh and I had been together, and that just just when I thought that my father could kind of wrap his mind around it. I realized he hadn't at all. I think this is the most just kind of like serious conversation we've ever had on the air. By serious, I mean just dealing with, um, you know, death and trouble and like really troubled relationship with with your father. And um, anyways, thank you for, for talking about it. And, and thank you for feeling like it wasn't your duty to be funny about it either as a writer or in this interview. Well, I always think that's kind of irritating. Like Mark Maron, his podcast, you know, he just wants, he just tries to get people to drop the shtick and then some people just won't do it and those interviews don't work. So, I know, I just trust you to, you know, whatever you think, you know, it was a pleasure for me. Well, it was a pleasure for me, even though we were talking about really painful things. <laughs> but I appreciate you sharing them. And um, I think we all learn a lot about ourselves by reading painful things that good writers like you write about. Well, thank you. David Sedaris has a new collection of personal essays called Happy Go Lucky. Kendrick Lamar has a new album called Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. It's his first album in five years. His previous album, Damn, won a Pulitzer Prize, and he performed at this year's Super Bowl in February. The new collection is a large one, 18 songs, and rock critic Ken Tucker says Lamar clearly has a lot to get off his chest about the effects of his widespread acclaim. Do you love me? Do you trust me? Can I trust you? Don't judge me. I'm a diehard. It gets ugly. Too passionate. It gets ugly. I'm afraid a little you relate but not have faith a little how my take my time ain't no saving face this time
For a man who can rap and rhyme with great subtlety, Kendrick Lamar isn't taking any chances on being misunderstood with this new album. On its cover, he wears a crown of thorns. The first words he speaks are, I've been going through something. Lamar really wants us to know that becoming the most esteemed hip-hop artist alive has come with no small burden, and that his efforts to turn the pressures he feels into art have been mightily difficult. I come from a generation of home invasions, and I got daddy issues, that's on me. Everything the four was that taught me may have is buried deep. That man knew a lot, but not enough to keep me past them streaks. My life is a plot, twisted from directions that I can't see. Daddy issues all across my head. Told me the foul, I'm teary-eyed. Wanna throw my hands, I won't think out loud, a foolish pride. If I lose again, won't go in the house. I stayed outside, laughing with my friends. They don't know my life. Daddy issues made me learn losses. I don't take those well. Mama said that boy is exhausted. He said go yourself. If he give up now, let's go costing. Life's a you could be a to step out the margins. I got up quick. I'm charging baskets and falling backwards, trying to keep balance. Oh, this the part where mental stability meets talent. Oh, this the party breaks my humility. Just for practice, tactics we learn. Kendrick Lamar's response to the huge success of his 2017 album Damn has been to turn inward to start re-examining much of what he knows about himself. The song I just played is Father Time, on which Lamar addresses what he calls his daddy issues. It's the first of a number of songs that speak of his childhood in Compton. It's comfort, yes, but even more so, it's pain. One of the standout tracks grappling with all this is called Mother I Sober. Over soft piano chords, he talks in a subdued voice about death, Secrets, faith, guilt, and what he calls his transformation. I'm sensitive, I feel everything, I feel everybody. One man standing on two words, heal everybody. Transformation, then reciprocation, karma must return. Heal myself, secrets that I hide, buried in these words. Death threats, ego must die, but I let it purge, pacify. Broken pieces of me, it was all a blur. Mother cried, put their hands on her, it was family ties, I heard it all. I should have grabbed a gun, but I was only five, I still feel it. Weighing on my heart, my First tough decision in the shadows, clinging to my soul as my only critic. Where's my faith? Told you I was Christian, but just not today. I transformed, praying to the trees. God is taking shape. My mother's mother followed me for years in her afterlife, staring at me on back of some buses. I wake up at night, loved her daily, traded in my tears for a Range Rover. Transformation, you ain't felt grief till you felt it sober. The chorus of that song is sung by Beth Gibbons of Portishead, who seems to be murmuring Lamar's own thought, I wish I was somebody, anybody but myself. As Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers proceeds, it becomes clear that this is not going to be the polished, smoothly crafted work that Damn was. The new album's form is dictated by its content, which means it's rougher, messier, more conversational and raw. There are lines here about having had writer's block. Another song is about his loving but complex relationship with two transgender family members. 
He mentions cancel culture more than once, as if fearing its sting, and then becomes angry at his fear of it. Much of the time, the instrumentation is spare, frequently just a beat and a keyboard delineating a melody. He tends to rap quietly as well, as though he's always looking over his shoulder to see who's listening to his confessions. Fred brother, real brother, that brother, we just up the score, give me that brother. Spirit medium, my rap brother, we headed there now, are you strapped brother? Peacemaker, but I'm not naive brother, gotta watch your homies and police brother. Cloud chasing hell of a disease brother. I'm fasting, four days out the week, brother. I pray to God that you realize the entourage is dead. I pray to God that you're not lacking when you off the meds. I pray to God she know them Cabo chips don't last forever. Jog you with her mama, go and get them kids. I pray to God you actually pray when somebody dies. Thoughts and prayers, way better off timelines. False claiming, not cute, I'm mortified. The new earth and high pursuit, 200 lives. Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers is drenched in deep melancholy. And the challenge when venturing into this territory is to avoid superstar-level self-pity. By summoning up so many specific memories and articulating their impact so precisely, Kendrick Lamar works through his issues with uncommon grace. Hello, new world, all the boys and girls. I got some true stories to tell. You're back outside, but they still lied. Ken Tucker reviewed Kendrick Lamar's new album, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. Coming up, New York Times religion correspondent Ruth Graham will talk about how the issues dividing the Republican Party are creating tensions within white evangelical churches across the country. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Dave Davies has our next interview. Here's Dave to introduce it. In 2020, Daniel Darling, an evangelical author and spokesman for the National Religious Broadcasters, spoke out in favor of COVID-19 vaccinations after his family had contracted the virus and his kid's piano teacher had died from it. The resulting furor from religious conservatives angered by Darling's embrace of the vaccine soon cost him his job. Our guest, New York Times correspondent Ruth Graham, says the episode is far from an isolated case. She writes that the issues dividing the Republican Party today are creating tensions within white evangelical churches across the country. Pastors who won't embrace Donald Trump's views are facing criticism, losing parishioners, and in some cases, leaving the ministry. Ruth Graham is a Dallas-based national correspondent covering religion, faith, and values for the New York Times. She graduated from Wheaton College and previously worked as a writer and reporter at Slate. Ruth Graham, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much. You write about a pastor in Fort Smith, Arkansas, Kevin Thompson, who delivered a sermon in the fall of 2020, which would have been right in the middle of the Trump-Biden presidential race. What did he say in this sermon? This is a pretty standard uh, sermon that you'd hear in an evangelical church. It was about the gentleness of God. Um, But he made one reference in the sermon that stood out to a couple of people in his congregation. So he was drawing this contrast between God as a loving and accessible figure um, and just sort of comparing them to, to, you know, earthly celebrities as remote and inaccessible characters. Um, And he just made a quick reference to, uh, I think, Oprah, Jay-Z, and then Tom Hanks, um, just to sort of draw this contrast in in an understandable way. And 
Several congregants afterwards um, asked him by by text message and phone call, what did he mean by that reference to Tom Hanks? Um, And one of them raised the possibility, you know, sort of suggested that he obviously didn't care about the issue of sex trafficking. Um, He was completely confused by this at first, but sort of pieced together um, that they were being influenced by QAnon. Um, a piece of the QAnon conspiracy theory is that Tom Hanks is part of this ring of Hollywood pedophiles. Um, so it was, you know, kind of a wake up call for him, one of a couple of wake up calls that his congregation was really being influenced and listening to voices that he was having a hard time figuring out how to reach and how to respond to. Kevin Thompson had been at his church, the Community Bible Church, for a long time. Uh, And this little episode is reflective of a rift among and within white evangelical churches, which you write about. How would you describe this rift? What are the battle lines here? So evangelicals, they're in this sort of slow motion crisis. Um, And the reason I was interested in Kevin's church is because it is— you know, just a few years ago, I would have described it as a utterly typical mainstream evangelical church, um, trying to be, you know, basically apolitical, or at least not, you know, not a lot of discussion of politics from the pulpit, um, but broadly united by both theological and political conservatism, um, and pretty untroubled. Like, you know, everyone there sort of got along pretty easily until really the Trump era. And that's when these divides started to emerge between pulpit and pew in a lot of cases, people like Kevin Thompson, who he ended up speaking out against Trump, um, and people in his congregation, many of whom were really uncomfortable with that and strongly supported Trump. So he talks about being really shocked, not necessarily that people would end up voting for Trump, but that so many people in his congregation were really fans, you know, really loved Donald Trump and did not want to hear any negative words spoken against him. When you say he spoke out against Trump, that was not from the pulpit, right? That was in a blog, right? Not from the pulpit, right? He maintained this blog where he would write about, you know, current events and sort of think things through. He's a writer, too, has written several books um, and would kind of use that as a space to to think through contemporary events in a way that he really didn't want to do much of from the pulpit. Um, there's a, a real strong evangelical streak of not wanting to mix politics and worship, Um, historically, there's that streak. So yeah, he used the blog to sort of think through more, you know, direct political and cultural issues. So he spoke against Trump there. He also, a few years later, he used the phrase Black Lives Matter there. And it was really the blog that got him in quite a bit of trouble from the church, because that was the place where they were realizing, you know, our values aren't exactly in line here, and we're not comfortable with the direction that he's nudging us. It's worth noting that the pastor here, Pastor Thompson, was not a liberal, right, or a Democrat. Absolutely not. That's part of the kind of surreal part of this story. Um, He was a big fan of Mitt Romney. He loves the Bush family, like lifelong conservative, lifelong kind of, you know, interested in politics, conservative. He's conservative on gender, sexuality issues. I mean, just right down the line. Um, he is absolutely a conservative. And he thought in 2016, like, uh, you know, I'll vote for Jeb Bush, no problem. This is not an issue. Um, and then a lot of those assumptions really got exploded for, for Christians and leaders like Kevin Thompson 
2016 really um, exploded a lot of those relationships and, and assumptions. As these divisions ripple through these evangelical congregations, what are some of the other issues that people are fighting about? So race is a big one. Um, And the summer of 2020, with all the conversations about racial justice that that opened up in the country more broadly, really trickled down um, to evangelical churches as well. There were a lot of white pastors who really wanted to have conversations that summer, who wanted to use the protests as a reason to, you know, talk with their congregations, push their conversation, you know, congregations, have panel discussions, have, you know, more black voices at their church, you know, have these conversations. And a lot of um, congregations were really not ready for that and not interested in it. The pandemic has really complicated all this as well. Um, So initially, just the fact of not being able to meet either for a short or a long time, that separates people. People are only encountering each other on social media. They're not gathering. Um, they're they're not sort of coming together and seeing each other face to face. So things got, um, you know, that led to a lot of ugliness. And then, of course, the politicization of issues like vaccines, um, church closures themselves, masking. All of that became so fraught. And for pastors trying to hold a congregation together, you know, I heard from so many people over the last few years that just felt whatever they did in that arena was going to make half of the church upset or at least, you know, a significant portion. And as Kevin told me, you know, he learned in seminary, it only takes seven people in a church to get you fired. Um, So with this much sort of discontent roiling over racial issues, cultural issues, and then the pandemic laid on top of that. It's really an uncomfortable time to be an evangelical pastor. The seven people who could fire you being who? The elders of the congregation? No, really. So because, you know, leadership structures are different. So not elders, but just seven really unhappy, noisy people, you know, who are who are talking about you with their friends and kind of ginning up discontent. Um, that that's, you know, I guess in a, in a kind of loose way, that's the number of people that can sort of start the discontent that would lead to your ouster. You know, Pastor Kevin Thompson in Fort Smith, Arkansas, was troubled by people thinking that Tom Hanks was somehow involved in child trafficking, which raises the question of the reliability of the information that people are counting on. And you're right that that Pastor Thompson wrote in his blog that Christians should apply research and discernment and that promoting things that are not true about others violates the ninth commandment. That's the one against uh, about bearing false witness, right? Um what was he getting at? He was really disturbed by what he came to see as a crisis of authority within the evangelical church more broadly. So you have people watching other pastors, other kind of media figures online, getting their own views affirmed, encountering conspiracy theories that way. It just becomes it's it's much easier to just find a spiritual voice who matches your political worldview online than to sit around while your pastor makes you feel uncomfortable in your seat at church. Um, so, you know, so a line that I hear from a lot of pastors is, you know, I get them for one hour a week and Fox or OAN or anyone else gets them for, you know, it could be 20 hours a week. Um, so it's just really hard to compete with the voices that conservative American evangelicals are, are encountering online and on cable news. 
So there are tensions, there are disagreements. And and what has it meant for the membership of, you know, congregations like Community Bible Church, which is the one that Kevin Thompson in, in, in Arkansas headed? It's been really difficult. So the people that I spoke with at Community Bible were really frustrated and saddened by what they saw as sort of the collapse of the church that they had known, where they felt very comfortably apolitical there, where, you know, supposedly sort of anyone could come, anyone could be comfortable, and we didn't have to hear about quote unquote politics in church. As Kevin points out, you know, he would occasionally speak about abortion from the pulpit, and no one thought of that as politics. No one saw that as political. Um, but then when he would talk about racial justice um, and issues related to that, you know, suddenly that was political. So there is this kind of interesting in-group shifting definition of what it, you know, what it means to be political in church. But for church members, they felt, you know, five years ago, we were comfortable here. All of a sudden now our pastor is telling us that we're, you know, implicated in systemic racism and we're not comfortable with that. So was he losing members? Yes, absolutely. And this is not just at Community Bible. So across the country still, even as almost every church is meeting in person again now, but attendance is still really dramatically down. So it remains to be seen what that will look like in another few months or in a year. Um, But there is a real sort of attendance crisis in the American church right now overall. So that's churches everywhere, not just evangelical churches, not just... Absolutely. Right, right. So Kevin Thompson had spent most of his career, I think, at Community Bible. Did he stay? He did not stay. So last fall, he left Fort Smith, where I should say he grew up. Um, so he was he was born and raised in Fort Smith. He left for seminary, came back, expected he would live there for the rest of his life. Um, but it just became untenable. You know, he and his wife talked about, you know, the way they talked about it was, we can stay here and have all these sort of happy memories sour um, and have things potentially really go south here, or we can leave, you know, sort of cut our losses and keep those happy memories. So they left. He's an associate pastor out at a bigger church out in Sacramento, California. Um, And I think that was a really, you know, a bittersweet, the, the right decision as he talks about it, but also really bittersweet, leaving family and friends and just an expectation that he'd be embedded, would be embedded in that community for the rest of his life. Let's look at the other side of this. Um, Are congregations whose leaders openly and avidly embrace Donald Trump's politics, are those congregations growing? Yes. There are a lot of individual churches like this where pastors are uh, really speaking openly um, about political issues that are that are booming. Um, One way you can see that is churches that responded really defiantly to pandemic. Uh, you know, early pandemic precautions and lockdown orders and you know, churches that defied that and opened early, in some cases courting lawsuits, in other cases suing themselves. Those churches are really thriving. Um, people really responded to that. And, you know, th- people wanted to meet in person. I mean, I think that was true of almost any regular churchgoer. Um, but there was sort of the defiance there specifically that people that people really did respond to. This is a big question, but I'm wondering, um, I mean, look, certainly people besides evangelicals are attracted to the 
to Donald Trump and to his political views. But uh, it does seem from these stories that that white evangelicals are embracing them in a in a really passionate way. Do, do you think that there's something about the experience of being uh, an evangelical that makes one more predisposed to accept and propagate these messages? I think what made them so loyal to Trump, in part, it's that he courted them really directly. He made promises to them. He showed up in their churches and, uh, you know, not just churches like Kevin's, but, you know, healing prophetic churches. He made a really distinct uh, appeal to charismatic Christians and sort of brought them into the fold in a way that other Republican presidents had sort of held that cohort at a little bit of arm's length. And evangelicals as a whole, I think, saw Trump as someone who was fighting the good fight on their side, understood what they wanted, um, took them seriously. And for a lot of them, you know, the country has sort of gotten to the point in their eyes where the stakes are too high to keep being nice. And it was not a lot of naivete when I talked to evangelicals who strongly support Trump. I very rarely heard the idea that anyone was fooled into thinking that this thrice married casino magnate was, you know, their idea of a great Christian. Um, There's a lot of doubts about whether or not Trump is saved or what kind of Christian he is or, you know, the, the sort of contents of his soul. But the proof is in the pudding. And they saw him making and keeping promises to them and fighting on their behalf. And in fact, there's a little bit of freedom in having someone who doesn't need to pretend to be gentle and nice, um, as, as the New Testament would ask you to do, but instead it is sort of, you know, unleashed to, to really be a, a bully and a brawler on your behalf. You know, one of the things that struck me as I considered this is that, you know, people are very committed to their political beliefs, including, you know, people who follow Donald Trump. But if, you know, it becomes not just a matter of what's right for the country or what's the best political course, but, um, a religious principle, I mean, it struck me that that might reduce the chances for, you know, compromise. I mean, you don't go halfway on the will of God, right? Well, right. I mean, religion and politics, each of them sort of raises the stakes for the other. Uh, so if you if you can infuse some religion into your politics, all of a sudden you're talking about not just the next election, but, you know, eternal, you know, eternal life, eternal consequences, like, you know, just it, it could the stakes could not be higher in some ways once you can put religion into that political sphere. And at the same time, infusing politics into your faith gives it a kind of urgency and immediacy. So we're not only talking about High flown, you know, ideas about the soul, and um, but we're what we are talking about, you know, what happens next for my family, for my state, for my country. Um, there's kind of an urgency and immediacy and sort of intimacy. Um, so it's a it's a symbiotic relationship that I think fuels each side and and gives both a lot of energy. Well, Ruth Graham, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Ruth Graham is a national correspondent for The New York Times, covering religion, faith, and values. She spoke with Fresh Air's Dave Davies. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. 
Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering today from Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross.